the demonic. The conversation has been dismissed, ignored, exaggerated, but rarely understood. Many Christians and non-Christians experience the presence of evil, but don't have the categories to evaluate, let alone be set free from their presence. What does the Bible really say about it? How have Christians dealt with this in the past 2,000 years? And most importantly, what should we do about it today? No matter what our history or theology or bias or pain or disbelief, Deliverance gives us a way to engage in this conversation to help set people free to live as Jesus promised. Hey, Sanctus Church, welcome to week three in this very interesting series, this mini-series on spiritual conflict and on deliverance. And again, if you've not listened to week one and two, please go back and do so because they are, again, integrated, like building week after week into sort of the whole picture. Now, I don't remember if you uh, remember your first time you bought a house. Maybe you're like, I've never bought a house, but Joe and I had that privilege when we were younger, 20 plus years ago, we were in one of those sort of showrooms looking at new homes. And we were looking at a townhouse. And the woman who was in charge of the showroom, honestly, was really upset we were there. We could tell she didn't want any time with us. We were asking all these questions. And I could just see in her body like, oh, you're so young. You have no money. Why are you even here? Why are you even asking me these questions? I have to get on with more important clients who can really do this. What she did not understand is that my father-in-law was in the showroom in the back. And he was going to help us out. And so she had decided to dismiss us and actually ignore us basically with her body language. But the wild thing is actually we had a backing behind us that actually was gonna make the deal. And I thought that is such a brilliant, helpful, simple way to talk about spiritual conflict. As Christians, yeah, we're the young, don't have very much broken, messed up people. Oh, but we got a father who's backing us with great, incredible power to make the difference. That's the image I want you to remember, that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the Holy Triune God, He's in the room giving us backing as we're struggling and going through spiritual conflict. Okay, here's what we're gonna do week three. How do I walk in freedom as a Christian? What happens? Remember, we've been wrestling this through. What happens after I switch sides? Remember that key verse, 1 John 5, 19? We know we are children of God and the whole world is still under the control of the evil one. So again, I'm going to do it like this. How do I become a child of God? And as I am now a child of God, how do I continue to walk as a child of God? And what's my responsibility in this spiritual conflict conversation? And what is the church's responsibility? So there are three areas that always have to be looked at and come back to again and again and again. They actually make up the heart of discipleship and, and they affect our view of spiritual conflict. But actually, this is the whole thing for us. So you could say it's like this. It's relationship, understanding, and ongoing freedom. Or as a professor friend of mine wrote, it's allegiance, it's truth, it's power. By the way, write that down. Allegiance, truth, and power. Here's what he wrote. Each one of these encounters leads to a very specific, important dimension of the Christian experience. Allegiance leads to right relationship. Truth leads to right understanding. And spiritual power leads to freedom. It's a three-legged stool. If you're missing one of the legs, you become imbalanced or you what? You fall over. 
So fully devoted followers of Jesus and fully devoted church communities can never afford to be missing one or two of these legs. But here's the point. The vast majority of churches are struggling and are wobbling because they don't take all three serious. Seriously. So there are some churches, maybe this is your background if you have church experience, where pastor is sincere, loves God, but he's got the gift of evangelism, and all they do all the time is talking about allegiance, allegiance, meet him, meet him, meet him, meet him, but no one's ever growing in truth, and you're not sure what to even do with spiritual experiences. Other people are truth, 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 understanding, understanding, lots of Bible studies and creeds, and man, you know truth, and you, you swim in truth, but you've never even seen anyone cross the line of faith in a long time, if ever, and spiritual experiences, yeah, not so much. And then there are other churches, it's all about fire tunnels and Gabriel and clouds and I had all these experiences, and, but you don't know where they're coming from, what the source is, how to evaluate them, and you're still not sure if anyone's even coming to Jesus. I know those are three sort of stereotypes, but here's the point. All three of these have to be alive in your life as a Christian, if you are one. This is also, if you're not a Christian, to show you how you cross the line of faith. And all churches must continue to fight for all three of these things. So today, as we continue this series on deliverance and spiritual conflict, I want to start with that first thing, allegiance or relationship. The Bible's primary concern is about our relationship with God. And this is an all-imposing, all-consuming relationship. And the closer we grow with God, then suddenly our relationship with other people actually change. Now, relationship with God starts with a commitment or allegiance with Him. As with all relationships, involves not just thinking something, it's doing something. It's understanding and action. Being right is not enough, it's relationship. It's like a wedding. I do this all the time. This is my wedding ring. When I put this on 20 plus years ago, 21, 22 years ago, 21 years ago, when I stood there, I made these vows in sickness or health, death, forsaking all others. All of those are, notice, allegiance conversations. I said before God and my wife and others, I don't have the right to have sex with anyone else. I don't have the right to date anyone else. I don't have the right. I, I don't have the right. I am now in relationship. I have made a vow between God and my wife that I'm exclusively my wife's. I am Joanna-centric. Th- this is what we need to recover. That is real conversion. Jesus summarized our whole faith this way in Matthew 22, 37. Love the Lord God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, that is the first and great com- greatest of commands. The second is like it, love the neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets, the Old Testament, hangs on these two commandments. Now notice the order, God, the neighbor. And it's not just about knowing, it's about doing. Mind, soul, and will, like we're involved, love. So the initial step is saying, yes to the relationship, and the heart of this yes is switching allegiances from another God or another religion or other worldviews or from even good things that are primary from sin, Satan, or self to Jesus alone. This is the starting point of becoming a fully devoted follower of Jesus. And not only that, as we've learned in the last two weeks, this is when you switch sides from the devil owning to God owning. Now, some of you have not said yes, you're checking stuff on out, and that's great. Others of us have said yes. Some of us know the exact time when we said yes to Jesus. I have that Sunday school, I was three years old, Sunday school teacher, and then my mom led me to Christ moments. Many others of us cannot point to that time, but we know because of our life, he is now with us. But let's all stop and really hear 
what it means to switch allegiances and follow no matter who we are. And if you're seeking or skeptical or checking this out, hear these words from Jesus. It says in Luke 14, 25, large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoa, hate? That's not just un-Canadian, that's really strong. That's an all or nothing idea, no wiggle room. Well, here's the point. He is listing everyone and anything that could be important so we cannot escape. I love when one person sort of helped us with this contextually. He said, look, Jesus gets right to the point. The idea is not that we should hate our family or our lives, but that in comparison to Jesus, if we are forced to choose, the winner always must be Jesus. He is to be loved more than anyone else. More, however, in the first century context, to decide to follow Jesus actually did mean that people would decide against their family. Those who love their family more would not even consider following Jesus. Those who love their own lives would not even consider following Jesus, since trusting in Jesus might actually lead to persecution or death. Thus, Jesus' remarks come in the context of what conversion may have required. People need to understand the cost. That's why Jesus says in verse 27, anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. See, Jesus continually is redirecting loyalties. What does this mean? It's all about saying the yes. This is calling to hate self like the above way. And this is saying, look, everything that makes you up, family, friends, your inner life, your inner circle of friends, your DNA, they're all now second to Jesus. And Jesus brilliantly uses the cross to drive the the idea home. If you're about to die, you're not securing your identity in money or power or sexual experiences or your rights. You're about to die. In other words, all of that becomes irrelevant because the thing that's about to happen. Jesus says in verse 28, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if they have enough money to complete it? For if he lays a foundation, is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him and say, this fellow began to build, but was not able to finish it. We've all seen this in culture, all these major projects, and because of bad project management or not enough money, it falls apart. Jesus says, do you really want freedom? I mean, do you really want to be set free from sin and death and the demonic and the world as you've been learning in the last two weeks? Oh, okay, then I have to become Savior and Lord. But that is expensive. It will cost you your life to get life, but that's where freedom is if you want it. Verse 31, oh, suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he's able with his 10,000 men to oppose the one that's coming with 20,000 men? If he's not able, he'll send a delegation while they're way off or long off, and they'll ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you're still owned by the other side, and you cannot have ultimate freedom. If you are a follower of Jesus, then you are owned now by Jesus and have God-given power to walk in new freedom. Like I talked about in week one and two, possession is positional. You're either owned by Jesus or Satan, but you cannot be free unless you have a new master. And the new master and the new friend and the the kind master, Jesus, is the one who sets you free from upstairs and actually gives you the ability. Remember that group of verses we looked at in week one? 
that summarize all three enemies. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. As for you, pre-Jesus, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world, and the ruler of the kingdom of air, the spirit who is now at work on those who are disobedient. Sin, world, right? The devil. Three enemies. Verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive, brought us back to life with Christ, even though we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Okay, does that make sense? So that's what allegiance is about. So this now leads us to part two. Walking standing, and being formed in the truth over a lifetime once we switch sides. Now, why is truth important? Oh, because the world and our own hearts and the devil traffics in lies, in deception. So many people say this in our culture. Trust your gut, follow your heart, be your authentic self. You know what's best for you. Your truth is important. We even heard phrases like post-truth or there's no such thing as truth. And then the reality is, because we're in such a painful moment, our pain and our perception and our journey becomes godlike. Some of these things are important, but they are not the foundation of truth. Truth externally comes from the outside in. You want to know the true condition of our hearts? It's Jeremiah 17.9. The heart is deceitful above all things and is beyond cure. Who can understand it? Oh, don't trust your gut, your, your gut, my gut, my heart, my authentic self, deceitful beyond cure. That's the truth. Oh, and then there's Satan. Remember this from two weeks ago, John 8, 44. Satan is a murderer from the beginning, not holding to truth. There's no truth in him. When he, he lies, he speaks his native language. He's a liar and a father of lies. Whoa. Uh, when Jesus was tempted, Matthew 4, it says the tempter came to Jesus. He tempts. Uh, tempts us to do evil things. And then in Revelation 12, we haven't got there yet, Satan is called the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before God day and night. Wow. So you got deception and lying and killing and tempting and accusing and deception. Oh, that's why truth matters. Your own heart, my own heart, multiple world systems and the demonic will lie to you, try to kill you, tempt you to sin, tell you trespass is okay. Also, because of our pain and our desires that we've been naturally born with, we will try to reshape God or truth so we feel that we can be a Christian, stay as a Christian, and yet change it so we're okay. Ah, oh, And then also the devil in your own heart is going to accuse you of things you've never struggled with. And then you're like, did I struggle with that? Am I that thing? And then also your own heart and the world and friends and family and enemies and the devil will bring up stuff you've already done and God's forgiven you for. And they're going to say, you're not forgiven. Truth. We need truth. Who is God? What is he like? What is he up to? What, what has he called us to be, to know, to understand? What has he declared over us? This becomes foundational to how we live because we see the world and others through the lens of what we think. What do we see in the early church? The very first description, Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Allegiance moves to truth. Relationship with an ever-growing understanding, that's the pattern we need to embrace. One of the best passages on discipleship and spiritual conflict even that contains relationship, knowledge, and power is John 15. I could preach for hours on the depth of this passage, but I just want to focus on the PowerPoint, power and, uh, sorry, the knowledge part today. 
Many images have already been used about Jesus by John. He's been called the Good Shepherd, the Bread of Life, Water, and Light, all common in the Jewish worldview. But now he chooses another sacred image in Judaism, the vine, the vineyard, and the branches. Now, if you read your Old Testament, Israel was called the vine and the vineyard. And then Jesus comes along and says this incredibly arrogant, blasphemous thing, unless it's true, and it is. He says in John 15, 1, I am the true vine. Oh my goodness. And my father is a gardener. Jesus is not Israel anymore, just me. Whoa. Oh, I'm the true vine and God, uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, no, he's the true planter. He, he, is, he placed me. I am replacing Israel. Why? Oh, because Jesus has and is about to do something on the cross that the people of God have never been able to do before. Fully obeying God and his word without compromising. His allegiance is clear, his understanding of truth perfect, his filling of the Holy Spirit all-consuming, never abused, and he walks in it. Jesus says, remain in me, I'm going to remain in you. Abide, walk with me. Notice, spiritually and scripturally, truth and knowledge are experiential and cognitive. It's both. We have this powerful, mystical union with God. Why? Because when we became Christians, the Holy Spirit moved into us. That's why he's called the Spirit of Christ. Romans 8, 9, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they don't belong to Christ. Without the Holy Spirit, you don't belong. You, you haven't switched sides. You're not saved. You're still condemned. You're not a child of God. You cannot call God Father or Dad. Only through the Spirit is Jesus revealed. Only through Jesus can you access and see the Father fully. No Spirit, no Jesus, no Jesus, no Father, no Father, no relationship, no life, still owned by the other side. But when the Holy Spirit is present and we allow him to fill us and we get filled with the ethos of Jesus, he reveals the scriptures, he brings us into relationship and he leads us into all truth. That's why he says next in verse four, no branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am in the vine and you are my branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he's like a branch that is thrown away and it withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown in the fire, and burned. One person did a great job when they outlined this. He said, back to the question from verse 2. Is this saying I can lose my salvation? Is this saying that I can walk away from Jesus? No, no, don't misunderstand the metaphor. The principle is simple. Jesus the vine is the source of life. To fail to have him is to fail to have life. To refuse to remain in Jesus is to refuse the gift of life he offers. Elsewhere, Jesus refers to his gift as living water or bread of life. The image is the same. He provides this analogy to talk about the essential life-giving work. He's not discussing the history of individual branches. So then here's the question. Ready? How do I, once I'm in relationship with Jesus, walk with Jesus? And then he says in verse 10 of chapter 15, if you obey my commands, you'll remain in my love, just as I've obeyed my Father's commands and remained in his love. Truth and knowledge are about God and his work and his will growing after our allegiance. See, the kingdom of God is any place or space where the reign and rule of God is welcomed and accepted. This is where Jesus isn't just your Savior, he's your Lord. See the connection between allegiance and truth. I love this. This, what I'm about to read, so important. Is discipleship, one wrote, a commitment to doctrinal beliefs concerning God and Jesus? Is it a way of life, a way of love, 
that sets up dis disciples from the rest of the world? Or is it an experience, a mystical encounter that transformed? The answer is yes to all three. Discipleship is a way of thinking, doctrine, a way of living, ethics, and a supernatural experience that cannot be compared with anything else in the world. In other words, we are people of truth. We are people choosing to be molding, choosing to mold our lives after the will of God. And so we must know God and his commands. And the only way to do that is to know the primary place of that revelation, the Bible. The more you know the Bible, the more you'll hear and the more you'll become and be like Jesus. J.A. Packer, that great Anglican scholar and pastor, wrote this amazing little description of the Bible like this. What scripture says, God says. For in a manner uh, comparable only to the deep mystery of the incarnation, the Bible is both human and fully divine. And so all of its manifold contexts, uh, contents, history, prophecy, and poems, and songs, and wisdom, and, and writings, and sermons, and statistics, and letters, and whatever else should be received, all as from God. And all that the Bible writers teach should be revered as God's authoritative instruction. Christians should be grateful to God for the gift of his written word. And they should try basing their life entirely and exclusively on it. Otherwise, we cannot honor or please him as he calls us to do. So let's just take a moment to listen to what the Bible actually says about itself and its role in truth. 1 Timothy 4.16, watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. That's my life verse, by the way. Psalm 119.105, your word is a lamp to my feet, a light for my path. So it helps us get saved. It's a light but it also instructs, challenges, and empowers us. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures God breathed and it's useful for what? Listen, teaching us, correcting us, rebuking us, training us in right things, righteousness, so the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You can't be challenged, empowered, rebuked without it. And by the way, I'm just gonna do this again, sorry. So many people say, well, I'm gonna obey and I'm gonna listen to Jesus's words in the Bible, but all the other ones are lesser. No, no, and no again. When you hear Christians say, we know better than Paul or Jude or Peter or John or Moses or Jude or the author of Hebrews, that is a huge flare that false teaching is around the corner. Again, I'm gonna say this again. If you start hearing people say on social media or in your connect group, well, Jesus didn't talk about that topic, so we're gonna decide what's right. Or Paul got that run, or Paul got that wrong, run. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus, and the Holy Spirit is whom God the Father and the Son use to give us Scripture. Jude, James, Moses, Jeremiah, Solomon, John, Luke, Paul, anything they said is inspired by God, and Jesus did speak because Jesus is God, and this is his book. You cannot divorce the written word, the Bible, from the living word, Jesus, and the living word, Spirit, the Holy Spirit who inspired this book. So this book reveals salvation and this book brings light and this tells us what's right and wrong, but it also convicts us. Hebrews 4, 12, for the word of God is living and active. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And even so, it's also given to make us holy. John 17, 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Okay, let me bring this back to spiritual conflict. That's why in Ephesians 6, it says not if, but when the day of evil and temptation comes, we are commanded to put on the full armor of God. 
And the piece that holds the whole uniform together is called the belt of truth. And the only offensive weapon that a Christian is given is called the sword of the Spirit, which is the Bible, the Word of God. Jesus models this. When Jesus is encountering Satan in the wilderness, Jesus doesn't say, I rebuke you in my name. He actually quotes the Old Testament and he says, you got to leave because this is truth. Truth, biblical truth, removes the power of lies. But you can't put the armor on and stand when the demonic come and tempt you if you don't know the truth and the scriptures. Okay, just pause for a sec. As allegiance changes your sides and it gets clear, as you continue to walk in truth, then the Holy Spirit's power comes into play. There's the third leg in the stool. He is the power of Jesus in you to actually tell evil to leave. This is where the power play comes in. See, you have the power of Jesus as a Christian even to say no to sin. You don't need to blindly give into a world system anymore. Non-Christians, by the way, do not have this ability, but you do. This is what Paul wrote in Romans 6, 18. You have been set free and have become slaves to righteousness. In other words, sin is no longer your master. Adam and Eve had a choice in the garden, but post-Eden, they lost choice and they became slaves to world, the world, the flesh, the devil itself. But when we meet Jesus, sin no longer is our true master and choice is given again we are free not to sin because of the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me just say this again. Jesus really lives in you. If you're a Christian, you are possessed, think about this, by another being that's not human, that's sentient, that's the Holy Spirit. And he is the one who lives in you that gives you the power to say no to sin and to make you more like Jesus. But the truth is, most of us, don't ask for this power. We don't claim that identity when we're tempted and we just easily go back. But we don't have to go back. And here's the other thing. When the demonic come and tempt us or they show up in any form and they oppress us, we actually have the power of God to say no to them. It was Jesus' half-brother, James, who said it like this in James 4, 7. Submit yourself. I know you, lots of you know this verse, but slow down. Submit yourself then to God, resist the devil, he will flee from you. Now, you don't have the devil fleeing until you submit. Submit means, it's a military term, rank yourself under. Submission is voluntary. I choose to obey God. Start. Then I resist. Fight the harsh captivity. Stand against the enemy of this church. Stand against the enemy of your family, your small group, your soul. There's no middle ground, by the way, between the power of God and your old master. When you say that yes to God through his word, indeed, the power of Jesus is present, then the demonic will have to flee. But if you don't submit and you don't resist, they will not flee. But by the way, it's not just you and Jesus. This whole conversation that we've been leading you through is getting to a really important point. So many people have reduced Christianity to my relationship with Jesus. You can't do that. Uh, Christianity is a, is a church thing. It's an us thing. You can't, have, you can't have Jesus as the head of the church without the church. That's why we need each other. Oh yes, you need to grow in truth, walk and stand in the gap. Ephesians 6 and James 4 are personal sort of statements. You stand. But then James 5 also shows us the community side of this. This is why, by the way, here at Sanctus Church, 
We, in community, in releasing prayer in other places, pray for people's freedom, bring pastoral care, use all sorts of different spiritual gifts to see the power of God set free. Because it's not a you and Jesus thing, it's an us thing. James 5.14, is any, money, any of you sick? They should, and by the way, that can be physical, emotional, sexual, spiritual, relational. Like that's a consuming statement. Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them in the name of the Lord. Note it, community. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well, and the Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Oh, verse 16. Confess your sins to each other. Pray for each other that you might be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Oh yeah, you need to work out your allegiance. And yes, we personally, James 4, 7, Ephesians 6, need to stand. But we need each other. We need leaders in our lives, elders in our lives, people with other spiritual gifts in our lives. This is a church thing. Okay, let me summarize it like this. Allegiance, commitment, faith, trust, when it comes to Jesus Christ, is either present or absent. We either place our faith in Jesus and we say no to ourselves or a different worldview. That's what this is. I was a Buddhist, now I'm a Christian. I was a Muslim, now I'm a Christian. I was an atheist, now I'm a Christian. Right allegiances only replace wrong allegiances. You can even say lots of things that are good, but they should not be primary. Then the second leg of the school is truth. It displaces and counteracts and breaks lies. And the truth is, no pun intended, many of the things we believed were capital T truth, God says is our lies. So the truth, as Jesus says, sets us free. Free from falsehood, freedom from enslavement to the father of lies. The truth, of God, the truth is God's word understood and then applied. And then power is when the holy power of God unseats or removes unholy power. So you got to understand this. When God's power shows up, it removes the devil, sin, or the world. Uh, but this is important. Truth only deals with lives. Unholy power deals with, uh, 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 holy power only deals with unholy power, right? And allegiance replaces wrong. You need all three. How you respond to all of this in this moment says a lot about where you stand when it comes to spiritual conflict. You might have been taught that once you came to Jesus, everything was a-okay. Your allegiance is sorted out. The devil can't touch you. Or you may be told, well, Satan can bother you sometimes, but if you read your Bible and get in a connect group, you'll sail right through. The truth will protect you. Or maybe you were taught trusting in Jesus and reading your Bible are good, but what you really need to do is strap it on your spiritual armory, armor and do battle with the enemy. The problem is none of these things, allegiance, truth, and power, are optional or unimportant. We need to maximize all of them, trusting in Jesus, feeding on his word, engaging the enemy without overlooking any of them. There's a lot to unpack and think about here. And again, week one and two need to be listened to in connection with this. But my only question to you is this. Are you given to Jesus? Like, by the way, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you cannot be free. So for you, the question is, do you want to trust in Jesus? Do you just need to say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I need your freedom. How are you doing with your view of Scripture and your submission to Scripture? The more you know the truth, the more you'll be able to stand. But do you know it? Is it part of your rhythm? Are you listening to sermons? Are you engaging carefully? And, and, and lastly, how are you doing with power? Are you standing in the power you've been given? And not only that, are you letting others come in so there's no hiddenness in your life and letting them be used by God to release the power of God into your life so you can be healed and free? I'm just going to simply pray that we not only understand this, but we grow in this. So, uh, Father and Son and Holy Spirit, thank you 
for this third week in this conversation. And here's what I pray. For those who have not crossed the line of faith, would you bring them to life, Lord, and may they actually give allegiance to Jesus. For all of us who are Christians, some of us are doubting our commitment or our allegiance. Would you tell them it's secure? Help this whole church to grow in truth. Love the scriptures, live under the scriptures, let the scriptures form us, not us form the scriptures. And lastly, would you release more power in this church through spiritual gifts and spiritual discipline so we can love and help each other. Uh, We ask this in Jesus' name. Uh, Amen.